was really fun to uh, be able to share Yellowstone as a family and, and some of the other areas that we went. Um, yeah, and it was the first time I think you and I actually had conversations with our kids about different things that were adult conversations about that sounds kinds gross. of stuff. Not that kind of adult <laughs> conversation. I don't think we needed to explain anything to them. Welcome to the Winnie and Bill Chat Podcast. This is episode 28, and we're calling this one, Ask Us Anything. Hello. Today's episode is going to be um, interesting. We put out a message and, and told people to ask us anything, and we would find a photo, and we would find an answer, and that's what we're going to talk about on this week's episode. But before we get going, we want to thank Anchor Podcasting Platform. It's a free online podcasting platform that anyone can use to make a podcast. If we can do it, you can do it. Thanks, Anchor. Thanks, Anchor. Um, the way we usually do our podcast is we will post nine photos to our Instagram account, which is Quiet Shutter Photo. And then we'll go through those uh, nine photos. Bill and I will look at them and we'll talk about the story behind the picture, what went into that picture, um, whatever comes to mind. And uh, so this week, our pictures are picked to match the questions that we received from our friends and family and listeners. And so, Bill, the first question that we received is from Sarah, and she asks, where did you meet and fall in love? <laughs> so, do you have the pictures up? I do. I got to get my pictures up. Where would you have said, where did we meet and fall in love? Uh, we met here at Park of the Pines when we were quite young. And uh, camp was when we first met, um, and now we live where we met. Kind of crazy. Right. I wish I had a picture of us when we were kids at summer camp at Park of the Pines, which is where we met when we were kids. Yep. There's no pictures of that. I, You know, there may be pictures, but I don't know if there's pictures like of you and I together per se. Right. Somewhere deep in a box somewhere, I have an old photo album of pictures I took when I was a kid. And there might be something from camps in there, but I was not about to start searching for that today. No. So the picture that we have uh, for this question is a picture of you and I, and it was taken about five years ago, would you say? Yes. At um, Here at Park of the Pines, which is where we now live because we are the campground managers for the park. And this is a picture taken probably after the first snowfall. Yeah, I believe this was in November, the first year we were here. And uh, there was nobody here. This is a picture we took of ourselves. The original kind of selfie where you put your camera on a tripod <laughs> with a timer. And um, I think we were trying to create a picture to use for our Christmas cards that year. Right. And so in this picture, we're both wearing our Stormy Cromer hats, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Yeah, and this might this might have been the first year we had those hats. 
maybe. Um, anyhow, we met, I mean, we probably have known each other since we were really quite little, right? But yeah, probably 10 or 12. <laughs> I was thinking even younger, like maybe our families had been at the same family camp at Park of the Pines at the same time. But my earliest memories of you are at probably junior high camp. Yeah, I think that's probably the earliest that I remember is junior high camp, which would have been when we were seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade, yeah. something like that. A so, while ago. Yeah. And I think we talked about this a little bit on our bonus episode on our wedding anniversary this year. So we don't need to drone on and on about our love story. <laughs> right. But it, like Bill said, it is kind of unique that... We met and uh, fell in love at Park of the Pines, and now we live at Park of the Pines. Right. Yeah, kind of a unique story. Yeah. So I know that when you first looked at this picture, the first thing you said was, oh, look at, I never noticed before the overspray on that little cabin. <laughs> yeah. All Funny. the things you start looking at when you're in charge of maintenance of things. Yeah, when you're responsible for how things look and how things run. You start to notice there's a little bit of paint overspray on the eve of this little cabin. Which we are not responsible for. <laughs> we always feel like we have to tell people that too. We didn't do that, but I guess we didn't fix it either. So The other thing that came to my mind is, you know what? That cabin needs to be painted again too. It does need to be painted again. Yep. Lots of work around here. Never yep. ending. Never ends. <laughs> So our second question comes from Lauren, who is our daughter. And uh, the very first question that she told me she wanted to ask was, who's your favorite daughter? Hmm. Since we have one. Since we have one daughter, she pretty much knew You're that. You're it. She's yeah. it. I said, come on, you got to come up with a better question than that. So her second question was, what was your best vacation? So we can move to the second picture, Bill. All right. I think. You're seeing these pictures for the first time right now, right? I am. Okay. So do you recall what this vacation was? This was the uh, the first time that all four of us probably actually ever ended up in the same place for any length of time on a vacation. As, as adults. Right. This was the first, first. And by all of us getting together, you mean our family. Right. Just the four of us. Yeah. So our daughter became quite the adventure when she went to college. She started to take summer jobs um, in between semesters of college in all kinds of different places. The first place she went was Yellowstone. And then after that, it was Alaska and Colorado and and all kinds of different places. But um, the first summer she was out in Yellowstone, we drove out at the end of the summer to pick her up, just Bill and I, and we were so impressed with the West and with Yellowstone that the next time we went out there, we convinced our son, who was in college at the time, to make arrangements to take a week off of school and go with us. So Andy was probably 19, 20. Yeah, 19 or 20. Yeah, so um, it was the three of us, Bill and Winnie and Andy, for the drive out. But then we retrieved Lauren, and it was the four of us driving home. And we had 
four or five days in there that we could be tourists, the four of us. And it was so cool. It was a really, really great vacation. Right, Bill? Yeah, it was, uh, it was really fun to uh, be able to share Yellowstone as a family and, and some of the other areas that we went. Um, yeah, and it was the first time I think you and I actually had conversations with our kids about different things that were adult conversations about that sounds all kinds gross. of stuff. Not that kind of adult <laughs> conversation. I don't think we needed to explain anything to them. Yeah, it was nice traveling with our kids as adults. I remember doing a family trip when our kids were little and we went to Missouri and visited our friends that lived in Springfield. Also visited our church's world headquarters and toured the um, the Peace Temple. Do you remember this? The kids were tiny. I remember this. Andy was in first grade and Lauren yeah. would have been in third or fourth grade. Yeah. And they were little. And um, when you go into the community of Christ Temple, which is dedicated to the pursuit of peace, you go through a winding um, peace walk. And the peace walk has different uh, stations that make you think about different things throughout the world, uh, you know, where we need to consider peace. And our kids were fighting with each other so badly. Yeah, there's one station where you, there's a reflection of the cross and the kids were on the floor wrestling with each other. And oh, and we were with a group of people too who yeah, were going through tour. the tour. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I thought we were going to get kicked out of the Peace Pavilion. They were not, they were, they were not interested. They were sick of being confined. It was awful. Yeah. So this was a much better trip than that. Yep. Um, we, um, this picture is actually two pictures in one. The top half is a picture of Bill and Lauren and Andy sitting on a bench watching Old Faithful in Yellowstone. And, um, the picture on the bottom is a picture of me with the kids with the Teton Mountains in the background. It was a great trip. It, and the kids got along. I mean, it's every parent's desire, I think, that when their kids grow up, that their kids will have good relationships with each other. Yeah. And Lauren and Andy are nearly four years apart. Um, the way their birthdays fell, they were four years apart in school. So they didn't spend a lot of time it running in the same circles of people or doing the same things. And I was, I've always been just a little bit concerned that maybe they wouldn't have much of a relationship with each other. And so it was super nice that trip that they um, got to spend time together as adults and get to know each other as adults. And it was a fun trip. The difficult part of the trip was that we were traveling in a Toyota Camry for adults <laughs> and all of their stuff. And Lauren's stuff from the summer. And Lauren had spent the whole summer out West. And so we had to have all of her stuff packed in. So as we went from one place to another and would um, unpack for the night when we found a hotel to stay in, we would all line up in the exact order of whose bag was ready to take out of the trunk. Yep. And in the morning we would line up as to who bag, whose bag went in first because everything fit like a puzzle and you couldn't put it in differently than you had taken there it was out. one way and there was no extra space and we were sitting on pillows in the in the car and we had little bags packed in around our feet and yeah we had even bought vacuum bags and 
and sucked down and shrunk some of Lauren's bedding and stuff and shipped it home because then we knew there wasn't room for that. Too. That's right. We had to ship them some things home. You know what? My mother reminded me of that the other day. She said, remember that time you were moving Lauren back home from out west and you bought those vacuum bags and you had to buy a vacuum cleaner to use them because when you use those vacuum bags, you have to suck the air out of the bags. Yeah, you have with to use the, the hose attachment right. on the vacuum to draw the air right. out of And we of the didn't bags. have a vacuum, so we bought a vacuum and we used it and then we returned the vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that we did that. Anything wrong with it? Nope. <laughs> it was, yeah, brand new, hardly used. Yep, only been used once. Just isn't going to suit our needs. No. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was a great trip. I would have to say that was we've had lots of great trips and and lots seen lots of wonderful things. And, I, you know, they're all right up there as being all great. But you're on vacation. It's a good time. Yes. But this particular one stands out as as just a it really was, special. It, one. it was a good time. We had another really good trip when we traveled with Andy and his wife, Sarah, out to Montana to go to Lauren and her husband, Cole's wedding. And so we were all together again for that week, uh, the week of the wedding and all the festivities. That was a great vacation as well. Yeah, we actually got to fly together out to the wedding and back and uh, had a crazy flight. Had We flew um, to Seattle for dinner and then back to Bozeman because it was just kind of the way the flight um, ended up, but we all had a good time and yeah, that was, that was another good trip. Yeah. Like I said, we've had a uh, really good trip. So we had a trip one time when we went out to see Lauren and Cole and we took a little side trip with them down to Tucson, Arizona. That was a great trip. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy doing those little, little trips here and there. They've, they've been very uh, adventurous for us and, um, the kids as well, I think. Yeah. We've had great trips where it's just you and I as well. We enjoy each other's company. So no, you know, those are all good trips too, but it is really special when we can share those things with our kids. I know recently, um, this past March, you and I had a trip to Arizona and Utah and we visited several national parks and we kept saying, Oh, I wish Andy was here. Andy would love this. Andy would, oh, I wish Lauren and Cole could come see this because they would love this. Yeah. <laughs> Always thinking about our kids and their families and how much they would enjoy the things we see. So when we have a trip with our family, it's extra special. Yep, sure is. Okay, so our next question is, oh, this one's a long question. I'm going to read it to you, Bill. Okay. This one, this question is from Carla. Okay. Under this pseudonym, this plant appears multiple times throughout the Bible, most often associated with its amazing scent that was prized by ancient people. It was often transformed into costly and exclusive perfume, oil, or unguent that was used to purify, heal, and for fragrance. What is it? So I stayed up last night and read the Bible all night long. You had to find out what ungent was. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure that I had the one that was mentioned in the Bible multiple times. Is it? Is it the uh, one that's not pungent? Pungent, maybe. Or it ungent is can be pungent. I think. I see. So, so it's yeah. probably not frankincense. Or yeah. Well, or, it's definitely not myrrh. It's definitely not myrrh. 
No. Of course, so it's lavender. It could be lavender. Carla knows how much you and I love the lavender farm that is not very far from us. It's a pretty nice place. We love the Lavender Hill Farm, which is, um, I would say it's in Horton Bay. Some people say it's in Boyne City, and some people say it's in Charlevoix, but. Well, since it's one mile from Horton Bay proper, I would say it's in Horton Bay. That's what I would say. And um, I think we've talked about the Lavender Hill Farm, maybe at, in the podcast at some point, but are you at the Lavender Hill Farm picture, Bill? I am. Do you want to describe the picture? This is a picture of uh, one of the fields of lavender. Um, and Winnie is in the middle of two rows of lavender. Um, the sun is setting. And Winnie's got a um, tie-dyed sweatshirt on that gives the contrasting colors in the picture. Um, the barn to the to the lavender farm is in the background of the picture as well it's just one of the really cool settings of this farm and the lavender is always in prime bloom in july so um picture a nice hot july evening when the sun is setting and it's a lazy hazy summer day and when you walk around the lavender hill farm of course it smells pungent <laughs> pungent Ungent. It's lavender. The lavender smell lovely. is amazing. Even when you go there, like I bet if you were to go there even today, which is November 10th, um, I think it would smell like lavender to you, even though the lavender is not blooming and it's been trimmed back and all of that. The plants themselves just. Oh, they do. Yeah. Oh, uh, yesterday I was blowing leaves out in front of the house here and uh, I have planted we should say that I have planted several lavender plants around the house that we live in here at Park of the Pines because I love the lavender so much yeah and I was I was blowing the leaves and uh, blowing them in a, in out around the lavender plants and it was just amazing how the smell just really was quite uh, saturating in the air it just smelled so good I know Sometimes um, just walking past the house, I can smell lavender, the aroma. It's, it's a unique smell. And um, yeah, so that I'm sure Carla asked that question because she knows how crazy I am. And you are a little bit about the lavender. Um, but she mentioned in her quotation there that lavender it was used for more than just for its fragrance. It was used for, how's the quote go? Uh, Oils for boils. Oh, gross. <laughs> no, that's, that's not it. It was used for, oh, ancient people transformed it into costly and exclusive perfume oil and ungent. It was used to purify, heal, and for fragrance. So um, medicinal purposes yeah, as well as fragrance. Uh, the first couple times that we visited the lavender farm, or, or one of the first times we visited, the gentleman who owned the farm had um like a distillery machine do you remember that yeah it's almost like a press yeah and if you go to the next picture i actually have a picture of it oh there it is um so lavender can be distilled and you can get lavender oil out of it or lavender um water which is like witch hazel and both of those things have been used or are used 
in healing and in cleansing. And uh, it is considered to be a purifying um, serum, I guess. Yeah, you would the, say. this gentleman that's in the picture is one of the owners of the Lavender Farm. And he was telling us that um, it's used uh, in England and Europe quite a little bit, like we would use uh, peroxide. Right. So it's a, it's a uh, sanitizer. Right. In this picture, you can see his distillery machine. And what it does is you put in the lavender and then it boils it. And then it runs cooling water through, which causes condensation to be made from the, from the steam of the lavender being boiled, if you will. And then it condenses when it gets cool, like condensation. And then you leave it set and the oil will rise to the top. Like just if you poured any kind of oil into water and the water goes to the bottom. And the oil is, is very prized, but it takes three pounds of lavender to make 15 milliliters of lavender oil. That's, I mean, like, that's, that's like seven drops. Yeah, that's like worse <laughs> than when you're making maple syrup. Yeah. And then the water, they don't throw the water part out because that's the part that's like the peroxide solution. Right. So both of those items are then bottled and sold. And that I think is, I think the Lavender Hill Farm makes money on selling lavender and plants and lavender satchels and other lavender products. But I think they, they spend a fair amount of time distilling the lavender and selling the oil and the water. Yeah, we've seen them doing this process quite a little bit every time we go there in the summer. So I, I'm sure that they're making money on this as well. They they don't leave any rocks unturned when it comes to the possibilities of turning a buck on the lavender. And that's a good thing. Right. They're using every every bit, every possibility, yes. every part. Yes. Yeah. I don't think anything yeah. goes to waste there. Yeah. Fascinating, though. Absolutely yep. fascinating. But I bet that that lavender oil is expensive. I would I would guess. They have a little gift store um, and I'm sure they sell lavender oil. I've never paid attention. But if it takes three pounds of lavender to make, what did I say? 15 milliliters? 15 milliliters. Then and it's, yeah. If three pounds of lavender is is quite a lot of plants because it doesn't weigh anything. No, it's, it's kind of straw-like, really. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of work. Hmm. So. You know, another place we saw lavender um, with regards to people believing the healing powers of lavender was when we toured Bannock State Park in Montana, which is an old gold rush ghost town. Some of the little old um, homesteads, would you call them? Yeah. Um, had a lot of stories about how um, sickness, you know, ravaged that community often like things, terrible things like smallpox and, and uh, pneumonia, those houses were, you know, it was a tough place to live in the winter and they relied on things like lavender to use for medicinal reasons. And in one of the cabins, they had a couple little bunches of lavender hanging on the wall that I swear to you look like they were as old as the cabins. Yeah. Yeah. They probably were. <laughs> All right. So our next question, Bill, is from, let me find it, it's from David. And he said, tell us about photographing owls, where you find them, how do you get close enough to get good pictures of them, 
And do you have any good stories about your owl encounters? So we have thousands, probably literally thousands of pictures of owls, tons of snowy owls, some of barred owls, got some great gray owls. Um, we, I am particularly fond of owls. <laughs> And they're actually, several of those varieties are fairly cooperative to take pictures of it if you find them. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, uh, unless you get really close to them, um, they're pretty photogenic and, and don't care that you're there most of the time. Yeah. If you're, if you're being respectful and um, we don't necessarily just publicly tell people where we find owls other than we find snowy owls in the UP. We find, we've seen barred owls in Northern Michigan in several places. Um, I didn't tell you, but I just had one fly in front of me the night before last going to work. You see, you're keeping it a secret. Yep. Can't tell you everything. <laughs> um, so the way, let's see what is question asked. Um, we find them in northern Michigan. I don't know that we've seen owls. I think you can, obviously, you can see owls anywhere, but um, we always are on the lookout to find owls when we're out in Montana, and I've yet to see an owl in Montana. Right, and it seems like we've we've mentioned a few times that there's got to be owls in this area. Um, oh, we've heard owls right yeah. here at Park of the Pines. We've yeah. never gotten our eye on them, but we've definitely heard owls here at the park. No, I meant when we were out in out west. Oh, in Montana. Yeah. I know that I've seen other photographers get beautiful pictures of gray owls in the Teton area. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we have yet to yet to find one. So that's on our list. <laughs> yes. So how do you get close enough to take good pictures of them? Well, the first step is to buy a super long zoom lens, <laughs> right? Yeah, you'll have a really hard time getting a decent picture of a, a an owl. With a cell phone. I mean, sometimes there, sometimes you might have an encounter. Right. You know, snowy owls surprisingly are not that afraid of people. And maybe that's because they haven't had that many encounters with people. They live, you know, in the Arctic tundra in the summertime and they, they travel south. And by south, I mean the northern United States um, for the winter. But I don't think they have a lot, you know, I don't think that they tend to go to cities. I don't think that they've had any bad encounters mostly with people. And so generally they're quite curious of us, right. I think. Right. They seem to be quite curious of us. We've noticed uh, the more that we've been able to photograph snowies in particular, they, they do seem very curious of what people are doing. And Right. Um, now that said, we really try, um, especially with the snowy owls, we know where they tend to winter over. And so we'll take drive aboats and use our car as a blind. And so we'll park on the side of the road and shoot pictures through the window. So it's pretty non-threatening. You know, um, sometimes we'll get out of the car maybe and rest the camera on the, the roof of the car or maybe the back bumper or something. But we generally do not try to approach the owls. We give them their space. Right. Um, if you were hiking and you came across an owl and you wanted to get a little closer, close enough to get a picture without spooking it, my advice would be to be calm and to be slow 
and, you know, don't take a direct beeline for the animal. Um, kind of maybe zigzag your path walking towards it and maybe mumble away or murmur away talking to yourself or talking to the animal just kind of quietly so that they don't think you're a big scary attack person. And uh, sometimes if you're patient and slow enough and methodic enough, you can get close enough to, to get a good look and a good picture. Do you have anything to add to that, Bill, about how to get close enough for taking good pictures? Uh, probably just like you were saying, <clears throat> I almost all animals and, and birds are no exception to if you're trying to get close to them to get some pictures, going on a straight line will just scare them. It always does. Um, just in don't run, just take your time and just. Uh, and maybe not looking directly you know, directly into their eyes, you know, and, and having a stare down, you know, glancing off to the side and, and, you know, yeah, yeah I think yeah. they need to know that you're not trying to chase them down. Right. Right. Um, the third part of David's question was, do you have a good story? We have a lot of good stories about encounters with owls, but um, the picture I've chosen today, do you want to describe this picture, Bill? Yeah, this picture is uh, a snowy owl that we got a, a pretty nice close-up of. He's either uh, an immature owl or a female. They tend to have a lot of the black flecking on them. Um, and this is actually at a place um, we can tell you exactly where it is. We got a tip from, uh, might have saw it on Facebook or something, but the... Uh, Wastewater treatment plant in Muskegon, Michigan, has a lot of ducks, apparently, that migrate through that area. And apparently the snowy owls were having duck for lunch a lot down there. And this was uh, a Thanksgiving a few years ago uh, that we took the day and went for a ride down to Muskegon. Um, you have to obtain a permit to go into that place, um, which you can do online. Um, and we looked into it and got a permit and uh, stopped and picked up the permits, signed a paper, I think, that said that we were there, and then drove around the, the plant. And uh, there's a few little causeways in between the big puddles of, of wastewater um, that... I think they call them lagoons. Yes. Well... Not really puddles. They're they were bigger than puddles. If you picture your local wastewater plant, uh, yeah, maybe some people have never seen a wastewater plant, but generally they have these big vats of wastewater and they run it through a series of... They're filtering ponds. Filtering so they ponds, purify yeah. the water and separate um, any debris and stuff that might have got flushed down the toilet, I guess. Um I, I think I remember, I, I don't remember where I got the tip from that the owls were at the wastewater plant, but do you remember when I said to you, hey, do you want to go to the Muskegon wastewater plant? I said, when you are a party animal. <laughs> yeah, I do. So the Muskegon wastewater treatment, um, I don't know if they call it a center or a plant, is kind of cutting edge. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this a little bit in a in different podcasts but yeah it's a big farm it's over a hundred acres of land 
that um yeah they use they use some of the some of whatever their wastewater product to um fertilize the the fields they grow corn i believe maybe corn other and, things and some different kinds of grain yeah, yeah yeah the place is really interesting though and has acres and acres but the area between the two uh lagoons that are part of the filtration system i guess you would say right Right. Had um, both of the lagoons had a lot of ducks. Do you remember what kind of ducks they were? Seems like they were just redheads or something like that, but um, and tasty the, apparently. It, tasty apparently, because there was what a half a dozen or a dozen snowy owls. We saw at least six that day. Yeah, and yeah. the and they were hanging out on the little causeway that's between the two lagoons, and they were in different states of either hunting or sleeping off their feast. But we got lots of great pictures of owls that day. And I loved I loved every picture we got. But um, it was a beautiful sunshining day. It was in November, like Bill said, Thanksgiving Day. This picture, the owl is sitting on some rocks, a pile of rocks. The background is all kind of blown out nice and nice and bokeh or bokeh or whatever, however you want to pronounce that. So it's all blurred with some little sparkly light points. And the owl is winking at us. Yeah, I think this one was in uh, some kind of uh, my belly's full coma. Yeah. He had had his Thanksgiving feast already when we got there. Yeah, I think he was kind of sleeping it off. And and when you drive across that causeway, you have to creep right. really slowly. Right. And I think he was just kind of peeking at what was going on while, you know. As we creep by. Only opened one eye. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the one thing I did learn from that experience was that there is a distinct difference between the kind of people who go to look at birds because they're birders and the kind of people who go to look at birds because they're photographers. And Yeah, I don't think birders like photographers. Birders do well. not like photographers that well. No. This is all a big generalization, but, you know, the birders sometimes take themselves pretty seriously. And there was at least one gentleman there with a spotting scope who was parked on one side of the lagoon. And he was, I think, spending as much time trying to scrutinize the other people who were there and right. and wanted to call them out for being too close to the birds or in harassing birds, in his opinion, or right. whatever. But, I mean, if you're driving past the cause on, on the causeway, and there's a snowy owl on the side of the road and it's not moving. What are you going to do? <laughs> I don't think he was upset. The owl can... wasn't upset. No. The gentleman was upset. Yeah. Somebody had not enough to do on Thanksgiving, apparently. Well, I guess. Besides we... us. <laughs> yeah, right. No, we had a great thing to do on Thanksgiving. Yeah, we but were, we were doing I don't something. ever have time in my life for sitting around spying on other people to see what they're doing. And no, he really thought that was his job. So although that was kind of a treasure trove, I'm not sure I'd go back there. Would you? No, one and done. Yeah. I mean, let the birders have it. And yeah, well, I think we said that uh, even though we had a great time and we enjoyed great. pictures we got, it was it was a little uncomfortable to have people feeling like they're um, staring you we're down. We're going to call the cops on you. Yeah. I mean, there was no confrontation, but you just no. knew that. no. That you were being watched and you were being scrutinized yep. and you really, they didn't really want you to be there. Right. Even though everybody 
if you go through the process and you get your little day pass, you're as welcome there as anybody else. Right. right. And so we got tons of beautiful pictures that day of the owls because the sun was shining, which is unusual in Michigan in November. Yeah, it was a cold day, I remember, but the sun was shining. It was it was quite nice. Um, there was another picture. I had a hard time choosing which picture I wanted to share today. There was another picture of a snowy owl that was kind of waddling across the road while on the causeway. Yeah. He kind of looked over his shoulder at us like a grumpy old man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those owls were not were not being disturbed by any means. They no. were they were happy and happy little fat, fat and sassy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a cool day. Yeah. Uh, another picture that I might have chosen had we not shared it in a previous episode was the time we were photographing an owl on a light pole, which is not very interesting. But this one hocked up a, an owl pellet. And that was pretty exciting. Yeah, you don't see that every day. And when you're in fifth grade, you get owl pellets that you dissect in science class. And I wonder, you know, how many people have done that in their lives, but never actually seen an owl in the wild throw up an owl pellet. Yeah, and I, I actually was able to retrieve that, and we we kept it around for quite a long time and let it dry out really well, and then when we dissected it, there was, the only thing that we could tell for sure was there was little beaks from songbirds, apparently, that had been and some, eaten. And some little claws. Yeah. Yeah, he'd been eating little birds. Yeah. The snowy owls in particular, I, I understand, follow the snowbird migration. If you um, live in northern states in the United States or in, in Canada, you'll know what snowbirds are. And they appear around this time of year, little flocks of birds. They're tiny. They're not the old people that go to Florida. They're actually birds. <laughs> yeah. And when they, when they kind of hang out on the sides of the road, and when you drive by them, they all take off. And when they take off, there, it's just a big sort of blur of white because they're they're white under their wings and um, but you know when the snowbirds arrive that the good weather is is going away. It's going away. Yep, they are migrating. It means the cold is coming. Yeah. So although they're beautiful little birds and I love to see them, I'm always a little disappointed to see them right. too. Right. But the snowy owls will soon to be coming because we we did take our little drive last week up to um, Sioux, Michigan and through the UP and we saw lots of flocks of snowbirds. So, you know yeah. what's coming next? Yep. Winter and snowy owls. It's been so nice here the last few days. I hate to even think about it. But, yep, it's coming. So our next question comes from Hillary. And Hillary asked, what is the best astronomical event you have ever photographed? So this picture, Bill, if you go to the next picture, Alrighty. is not the best picture we've ever taken, but it probably best describes the best astrological event we've ever photographed. Yeah. This was a cool one, actually. Kind of unexpected what we ended up getting. Yeah, this past summer, there was a, um, a comet in the skies and the comet was named Neowise. And um, so quite a bit of buzz about it online and in the news that if you looked out in the sky at certain times and certain direction that you would see the comet. And uh, it was kind of hard to see with your naked eye. I felt like 
Yeah, it was really hard to pick out. If you didn't have binoculars or something that magnified it, you, it was... Telescope. Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, y- you could see it a little bit. It was hard to find it. Once you found it, you could see it with a naked eye, but... And as um, the night, you know, as it got later in the night and darker, it would be a little more visible, but... Right. Um, yeah, and, and the skies here in northern Michigan are pretty dark because there's not a ton of light pollution. And so when the sky, especially in the summer, is so filled with the stars and the Milky Way, and sometimes it's hard to pick out individual things out of the sky. And neither Bill or I are the kind of person that educates ourselves on the constellations or, you know, different star formations or which ones are planets and which ones are stars or or maybe the space station that goes by some people really really pay attention to all the details of that but not us nope um however we do enjoy photographing the night sky and so we went to one of our favorite spots over lake michigan to try and photograph the comet neowise and while we were in the middle of doing that the northern lights appeared which is another fantastic astronomical event. Bonus. Yeah. yeah. It was, we didn't have any idea that the Northern Lights were even predicted to be out and about that night. We but, did not yeah. expect that at all. And a lot of times your camera will pick up things in a dark night sky that your eye can't see. Yes. And uh, so we were taking pictures and these are long exposure pictures. So that means you um, focus your camera. Um, a lot of times you really need to focus your camera ahead of time before it gets dark. and uh, Which we forget to do half the time. Right, right. Yeah. Focus your camera, turn off the autofocus and tape it in place so it doesn't, doesn't, your infinity focus doesn't go away. And then you've got to find what you want in the sky and finding Neowise uh, was a little bit of a trick. Yeah, it took us a little while, but we once we found it, we were able to get a few and then you play with your settings and right. your time right. and right you know do you, you have do- to have your you, i don't think we mentioned you do need to have your camera on a tripod absolutely can, on a tripod there's yep. no way of holding it still no way being, absolutely no way because this these were like 30 second exposures so right so we played around between 20 seconds and 30 seconds that your camera is taking that picture for that long of amount of time and if there's any wind in the air, it, it can cause blur, you know, it can cause your camera to move a little bit. Or in this picture, um, there's water. There was a little tiny spit of land with a tree on it that you see in this picture. And if the wind had been blowing the branches at all, they would have appeared blurry because of the movement in 30 seconds. Right. Um, so um we would take pictures and then we would check out the back of the camera to see how we did and and all of a sudden i could see in the pictures first that there was a bit of a green and purple glow starting and i said oh my god do you think that's northern lights and so we we stood and and stared off into the night sky and sure enough you could start to see that little bit of pulsing and the little um spears of light starting to shoot up in the sky in green and purple and and we were treated to the northern lights show along with um the comet yeah it was definitely a bonus that was it was a fun time it was a bonus this picture and like i said this this picture is a little bit grainy i it's probably not a picture i would blow up large and hang on my wall but it does show both events happening and um 
the tree, the little tree in the picture, a little scrubby tree is lit up. And that's lit up because as we were standing there taking the picture, somebody else pulled into that parking light and their headlights from their car hit the tree for a second and lit it up. But it worked in our favor, gave you a little bit of... Um, gave us some contrast. And, yeah, yeah. Kind of grounded the picture. Yeah. 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 That was exciting. So the comet was in the sky for two or three weeks, right? Yes. And it kind of <clears throat> traveled from east to west and it got higher in the sky as it went on too. So it was... Um, we set, we tried three or four different nights. We went out for an hour or so and tried uh, to capture it. And we did get some pretty cool pictures of it um, in some different spaces. But I think uh, my favorite pictures of the comet were um, the ones that we took at the harbor in Petoskey. So you had the, the marina, the boats all tied up and everything in the foreground and the sky and the comet in the background. But again, I think we did a whole episode about the comet, Neowise. Yep. Neosporon. And um, so I didn't choose one of those pictures. I chose this one because of the two different things happening at the same time and how exciting that was. Yeah. This um, spot that we were at is just a little roadside park on the side of the highway on Lake Michigan. And it's a, a location that when we have our annual photography workshop here at Park of the Pines with Jim Doty, we always take a little field trip out there to take sunset and night pictures. And the very first year we did that, uh, Jim was leading the group of 10 photographers and we were all lined up with our cameras and tripods. And, and he was trying to give us instructions on what settings to use and how to, how to get your night sky photograph. And as we were doing that, and that would have been in August, I think that first year. Yep. And all of the sudden Northern Lights appeared then too, which was totally unexpected. And what a thrill for all the photographers to be able to not only have a chance to do some night sky, but get a chance to take some pictures of, of the northern lights. So that was exciting. Yeah. yeah we've, was, had, we've had good luck in that spot. Yeah, we have. All right. So um, our son submitted a question. And I'm not sure what he was, what he was going for with his question. But our son Andy's question was, what is the, what is your most favorite thing that you've ever made? So Bill is a baker. Um, I dabble in the arts, the uh, visual arts. I don't know whether he was meaning what kind of food have you, is the favorite thing you've ever made or what have you ever created artistically? Or was he fishing around for that the, our most favorite thing we've ever made was our kids. What do you think, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> it's Who not, knows? It's, Lauren had previously asked the question, who's your favorite daughter? And it's totally like her to ask a question like that. But Andy doesn't usually fish for compliments. No, he usually doesn't. So, But they really are my favorite thing that we've ever made. Yeah. And do you see the picture of them? Yeah. This is a, a good fairly one. recent picture. This is a picture we took the week that Lauren and Cole got married. Do you remember this day you took Lauren and um, Andy and his wife, Sarah, for a hike? Yeah, we did. We went. I stayed back at the, at the cottage and, or the cabin or the whatever you call the beautiful place we were staying at. I took a nap. Yeah. So I skipped the hike. But this, this was on the hike. Yeah. There's a, there's 
several hikes around right around Big Sky, but this was a a fairly short one. I think it was only a couple miles long. Um, but uh, yeah, it was another bright day there. And and for the sake of um this to answer Andy's question, what is favorite thing that you've ever made? Um, I was looking for a picture of just Lauren and Andy, and I couldn't find one. I had to actually crop Andy's wife, Sarah, out of this picture. Sorry, Sarah. (laughs) We love you, too. Yes. (laughs) Anyways, this is a happy picture. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a happy week. But on further discussion, Bill and I decided that our most favorite thing that we've ever made is our favorite snack. Treat. Treat. Is butter tarts. Butter tarts. So if you go to the next picture, it's <laughs> a picture of um, our my Uncle Al, who is many things, but one of the things that he is is a dog musher and Iditarod finisher. Four-time Iditarod Four time finisher. Four-time Iditarod finisher. And uh, this picture was taken in Marquette, Michigan, after Al had finished a big race, a 200-mile race called the UP 200. And Al lives in Michigan, but he was raised in, born and raised in Canada. And butter tarts are a Canadian, kind of a Canadian treat. They may come from England, but... Um, I would guess they're probably from England originally, but yeah. Do you want to describe what a butter tart is? So butter tart is just a... a um, the pastry is actually a pie crust pastry. You cut it out with a in a round, and it goes into a muffin tin. And we would call them tart tins. Tart tins, but yeah, Canada. a small muffin <laughs> tin. And uh, and then the filling is actually for anybody who's had a pecan pie. It's uh, that or diabetes. Re- yeah, <laughs> it's the type of sugary um, filling that you would typically make for um, a pecan pie. Uh, we like them with golden raisins in them, actually, instead of pecans. That's Some what people we typically... will put walnuts in them. Right. Yuck. Yeah, which Winnie does not like walnuts, so we don't do that. Um, I like the raisins in them. I like them plain. But they're, I mean, the crust has nothing but butter in them. The uh, filling, filling is brown is sugar and butter. Brown and sugar carousel. and butter. and co- Yeah, yeah. So there's pretty much as sweet as you can get, but it's pretty darn Nice little treat and uh, um, another little story. One of Al's uh, longtime handlers, Greg Hickman, also had run the Iditarod. And a handler is someone who works with a, a musher who has a team of dogs to help train dogs. And Right. They train yeah. train to the dogs to be um, ready to run races and that type of thing, putting miles on them and feeding the dogs and all the work that goes along with them. He was a uh, Greg was hired hand but he was also uh, a really good friend of ours and and a good, really and good friend of Al's almost really good like friend a friend of Al's almost like a a son yeah of Al's they really have uh, bonded for a long time but the one I don't remember was the first or second time Greg ran the Iditarod he had asked us just kind of on a whim hey sure would be nice if you sent some butter tarts up to the halfway point in the Iditarod I and think he was joking I think he was joking well we thought well we Why not? That. We'll do it. So we made two dozen butter tarts, put them in a shoe box, wrapped them all up in bubble wrap as much as we could, and and um, 
send him off to where we knew we, he was going to take his 24-hour layover during that race. And we had race. no idea if they would actually get to them because what we did was we mailed them to the like the community center in the small village in Alaska where, like Bill said, Greg was going to be taking his mandatory 24-hour rest during the Iditarod sled dog race. And we just um, addressed it to Greg Hickman um, in the Iditarod sled dog race in this little village. And miracles of miracles that actually got to him. Yeah, yeah. We didn't know until after the race, but he said it was like having uh, crack cocaine to, to trade with. He said, he, <laughs> well, he ate some, he ate a lot of them, but he <laughs> said um, a couple of different mushers knew what they were. And he actually traded uh, a bunch of different food. I think that, he traded butter tarts for gear that he needed. Yeah, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. It was, it was just kind of funny to see how it all worked out for him, but um, yeah. they are, they are probably my favorite dessert though. And so in this picture, Uncle Al is e eating a butter tart. He just finished the race and um, we had actually given him the butter tarts before the race started and he found a place in his truck to hide them. Yeah. And then after the race was over and he did his little interview with the media and whatnot and, and you know, unhooked all the dogs and fed them and put them away and took care of all his chores, he went to the little spot in the truck that he'd hid the butter tarts and pulled them out. And he said, these have been keeping me going the whole time. I <laughs> couldn't wait to get back to the truck and have some butter tarts. We thought he'd eaten them during the race, but he, he hit them and he says, I don't trust you people. I was hide them. <laughs> it kind of had gotten to be a, a tradition for us that whenever we went to see Al in a dog sled race, or if Bill went up to the mushing cabin to, to take part in, in dog mushing and whatnot, that He'd arrive with some butter tarts. So, yeah, yeah, they're maybe one of the most favorite things we've ever made. The other thing is there's so much sugar and butter in them that they don't actually freeze. Oh, that's true. So you can eat them anytime. Yeah. Um, another, another question is, um, this one I think was from Sarah again. And it was, what are... The top three or four things on your bucket list. And for today, I'm just going to narrow it down to one thing. And uh, What's that? Uh, the top thing right now on my bucket list is to get out to California and see the big trees. Oh, yeah. I mean, that has been on my bucket list for a while. And we thought we would do it this year. But yeah, the, this was the year. It was our 35th wedding anniversary this year. Yeah. And we were had big thoughts and we were going to make plans and go. And we did and have a great anniversary trip. We, we, we treated did. ourselves to a trip to Arizona and to Utah. And we went to Zion national park and Bryce park and Bryce Canyon and Capitol reef. And, and we had a great trip, but it wasn't out to California to see the big trees. So right. that's still on our list. Right. Um, in this picture, do you want to describe the picture bill? Do you remember this? Do you know where it yeah, is? This is <clears throat> this is down at, um around Grayling in Michigan. In Michigan. Um Hartwick Pines is the little um nature, I don't know if you'd call it a preserve or I would call it that. I don't know if that's what they call themselves, yeah, but but it's a it's a um an area that the Department of Natural Resources owns that's open to the public and they've got hiking trails that go through the woods, but there's these 
uh, what they call virgin timbers, which are these massive, big, um, I think these are actually white pines. Uh, but there's in this picture, you and I uh, have our arms around the tree and we're trying to touch hands on both sides. And I know that we did not touch hands on the other on side. On the back side, yeah. We, th this was just a massive, big yeah. pine tree. There are some nice, big, massive trees. And I would, if you're in northern Michigan, I would recommend taking some time to explore Hartwick Pines. It's, yeah. it's not a big place, but it's really cool. Yeah, there's and picnic I think area the, and stuff there the, too. On a hot summer day. It's kind of a nice little hike because it's got, you know, pretty thick canopy of trees. And so it's right. cool and right. yeah, that, shady. That is another spot we've seen owls too. We saw a barred owl in Hartwick Pines when we were there on yep. this particular day. Yep. Um, so I, I grabbed this picture just because it's us hugging a big tree. And right. I know that the trees this in is, California. This is probably are, a, this would be like a. A yeah. twig on a, yeah. on a redwood or something. I mean, you see but. pictures of the big trees in California. It would take 35 people to wrap around it. To, yeah, yeah. You know, I just, I can't were, but... even fathom in my mind what that must look like. Right. So that is number one on my bucket list. Do you have anything to add to the bucket list? I mean, I know there are things we... Would you put anything above our wanting to see the big trees? No, I think that's probably that's our number biggest one. thing on our list at the moment. Um, you know, I'd love to get to Alaska at some point, but um, I think the California redwoods would be um, higher on the list. So we like to end our podcast with the picture we did not get, the picture that got away or the picture we missed. And um, this week, um, the last question I'm going to share is the picture that got away or the picture we didn't get, or maybe it's the picture challenge that we're going to try to get in the future. So our last question is from Ashley and she asked, can you capture something like a waterfall and a sunset in one image? Hmm. I know we've never, I, I, we've never, that really stumped me. I thought for sure Nobody could throw a question at us that I couldn't find some kind of a picture to couple with it. But we've never photographed a waterfall and a sunset in the same picture. I'm not even sure if we've experienced a waterfall and a sunset at right, the same time. Right, that's what I'm thinking. You know, where you probably could do it, you couldn't do it this time of year, but up at Tequamanon Falls in the UP of Michigan, there's a big waterfall called Tequamanon. Um, the Tequamanon Falls. Yep. And it does face, when you're looking at the falls, it is facing west. So you could get a sunset there, I think. Although I there's think, a lot of trees yeah, and stuff around it. There is a lot of trees. I think probably there's several challenges with trying to photograph a waterfall and a sunset at the same time. Because if you are at the base of the waterfall, you're looking up, the, you know, essentially looking up a cliff face. So the yeah, sun would be set way. would be obstructed. Right. Because uh, well, the, the waterfall would be in the way. Right. So you'd have to be above the waterfall so you can see sky and, you know, good portion of sky and waterfall in the same scene, which you can at Tequamanon. Yeah, because there is, I mean, there's a there's a big, long path of viewing area there. But there is a one particular spot that I'm thinking of where you're facing right at the waterfalls, but you're quite a little bit away, away from it. With a big lens, you could probably get both. If there was a sunset right. that was going right up the river. That would be your first challenge is to find where you could see the sunset and the sky along with the waterfall 
The second challenge is that your camera is going to want to um, expose for one or the other. If you expose for the sunset, your waterfall might be too dark to see. Right. You expose for the waterfall, you're going to wash out that sunset. And the way to do it would be to take two pictures, one where the exposure is perfect for the sunset and one where it's perfect for the waterfall. Take it on a tripod so your camera hasn't moved at all. And then in post-production on your computer, you blend the two so that you have both in good exposure. But that's not how the question went. She said in a single image. Right. So that's that's a, always a trick. It's like photographing a dark bison in the bright sunshine in Yellowstone. You got to figure out where do I expose to get the best Find exposure. something neutral sometimes can be a trick. You got to find that neutral zone to set your exposure on. Yep. Um, there are some tricks you can do post-production. And um, they always say expose for, hmm, expose for the shadows or expose for the brightest spot. Cause you can in Lightroom or in Photoshop, you can bring those shadows up and lighten up something that's too dark. But if something's too bright and too washed out, you can't bring it back. No, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. But that is, that sounds like a big challenge. Yeah. Now I'm sure that Ashley must have a story to tell about trying to get a sunset and a waterfall in the same picture. Otherwise, I don't know how she would have come up with this question. Maybe we got to find some. But I've been stewing on it ever since I read it. I've been just trying to figure out. I really thought, tried to think of somewhere close by us where we could sneak over and get a waterfall sunset picture to add to the podcast for this week. And there's a tiny little fault waterfall. I don't even know if you could call it a real waterfall at that little park in Petoskey down by the harbor. But yeah, it, but that faces the wrong direction. It faces the totally opposite direction. Yeah, that's the opposite of it. No, that actually yeah. faces south, so that wouldn't work at all. That would not work at all. I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever been to Tequamanon Falls and stayed late enough. It's past my bedtime. It's past your bedtime. Because of the, the bedtime issue. Because <laughs> of the bedtime issue. Yeah. So, but that's a challenge that's going to be, now that's going to be on our bucket list. Right. And when we get a waterfall with a sunset, it'll be a whole podcast episode. Yeah. Thanks for the uh, thoughts, Ashley. It's, uh, we have a challenge now. I'm always looking for a good challenge. So that's <laughs> one to look into. That's for sure. And I challenge Ashley to come up with a good waterfall sunset picture as well. And while we're at it, let's challenge Jim Doty to see if he can get a waterfall sunset picture. Maybe we need to go to Niagara Falls. I don't know which direction that faces. I don't know either. We can't go to Canada right now. I hear that the Canadian side of Niagara Falls is the best and we can't get over there right now. So there's that. Let's add that to our bucket list as well. Sure. (laughs) So that's all the questions we had for today. This was fun. What'd you think, Bill? Yeah, yeah, this was good. We'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, and if you have any questions in the meantime, you can always drop them to to us on our Facebook or um, on our Instagram, or you can uh, leave us a message on our podcast website. You can even phone in and leave a voicemail. And if you do, we might play it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. That'd be fun. Drop us a line. Drop us a line. 
And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Have a good day. Goodbye. Goodbye.